1: So how do you get God's attention? I mean, if you're longing for Him in a deeper way, and if you're seeking His presence in ways you haven't seen yet, how do you how do you get His attention? Let's talk about that. Getting God's attention. For the specific purpose of having him visit his people in an unusual way. That, in, in essence, really is the definition of revival. Taking that which is his and visiting it in such a unique way that we are revived spiritually, relationally. That's what we're talking about today on Truth for Today with Pastor Phil Howard. Welcome to the program. Divine Conditions for Revival is the series. Today, once again, how to get God's attention. Here's Pastor Phil with today's broadcast of Truth For Today.
2: Look at the conditions, and we'll develop them later, but I want you to see those. Look at here. If my people are called by my name will humble themselves. Sounds like James 4, doesn't it? Sounds like 1 Peter 5. Are we humble enough for God to do a divine work? I mean, do you ever go to God simply for the purpose of humbling yourself? Humbling is a self-chosen attitude. Humiliation happens to you. Humbling is self-initiated. I want to be humble. I I want to get low before God. I want to acknowledge you, God, that I'm totally reliant on you. I'm totally dependent. I, instead of ego and pride that leads to all of our church fights, James says pride leads to our church fights and it leads to our downfall. Humility. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, you need to just check your attitude. Are you a pompous Christian? Are you a self-righteous bigot? As your Christianity, you got all the doctrinal answers, but you know you don't pant for God. But you won't humble yourself to say, It's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayers. Not my mother or my brother or my sister, Lord. It's me standing in the need of prayer. Pray. Did you know if I had everybody here write down their prayer life? You would be amazed at how little the average Christian prays, let alone the average pastor. You seldom catch people in the middle of a prayer meeting. It is something, we pay the preacher to do that. We pay somebody to do it, and the one you think you're paying to do it isn't doing it. They set aside, the early apostles and elders, they were set aside for the word and prayer None of our men do that exclusively. We do that as a bonus while doing 25 other things. More men can backslide as pastors of churches than you could ever imagine. And you know what goes first? Their prayer life. That's why they lose their marriages. They lose heart. They lose their way. How's your prayer life? If God did for you this week everything you've been asking Him to do in prayer, what would He do for you? You got anything on the list? He wants to hear you. Have you been showing up? I don't want to beat you up about it. I'm just asking you, are you praying? Are you praying? Have you been in a great prayer meeting where they do something besides John? I mean, where they pray? Where they get in earnest? It's a marvelous fellowship. I think Steve here tonight, uh, so many of those young guys didn't have jobs at first. Tuesday, Thursday mornings, we met at Quentin House or someplace. We prayed 6.30 in the morning. we prayed an hour and a half, then we'd grab a bite to eat, and we'd talk Bible the rest of the day. Didn't your fruit, did it? No, Steve's been going 25 years just in one church, and God has blessed them in phenomenal ways. Seek my face. I'll explain to you as we go on this what it means to seek God's face. What it primarily means is like seeking his presence. When God's face smiled on you, it was his baraka. It was divine blessing. His presence did not—the uh, presence of God, according to uh, Bruce Waltke, a Hebrew scholar, the presence of God always meant, I'm present to bless I'm not just omnipresent, I'm around. No, God met us in a specific way, relationally, because I'm present to bless. And when you seek his face, when his presence is there, it's like you're face to face with someone you love. There's nothing like looking in the face of a girl you plan to marry. You're captured by her face. It's a uh a relationship of blessing and favor and i want to know this gal and when you're face to face with god in jesus uh it is a transforming thing you'll never be the same when that when you feel i'm face to face i'm seeking his face and then when you're doing that it's hard to get into the presence of god with a playboy magazine in your pants When you get close to him, you want to get rid of everything that would keep you from him. So, he says, turn from your wicked ways. Turn. And then, he says, I'll respond three ways. I'll hear you. I'll forgive you. And I'll restore your land. Let me give you nine characteristics of revival throughout history. Wilbur Smith did a study on revival... I wish—I'll get these on notes. I'm just working through this material myself. Uh, nine things have happened when there's been revival in history. And we'll start the journey next Sunday morning as we go to the first Old Testament king. But let me give you the nine characteristics of what God's done when there's been revival. Number one, it was usually preceded by a time of deep spiritual decline and despair. And you'll see this— under Hezekiah, you see it in Elijah when the prophets of Baal, Uh, it usually was always chaotic in spiritual terms. The chosen people of God were into idolatry, sin, and shame, and God chose a time to move in. Two, each revival, this is interesting, Each revival began in the heart of one of God's servants who then became the instrument in God's hand to stir up the sleeping consciences of God's people. It usually started with a man, started with somebody he touched, had a burden, maybe started a prayer meeting, preached a simple message like Evan Roberts, uh, be a Jonathan Edwards that preaches sinners in the hands of an angry God but God had already been working in New England but there were pivotal men the Whitfields the Wesleys and boom we'd use men in regions and areas and uh I hear him say in Chronicles, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth that he may show himself mighty towards him whose heart is right towards him. He looks for somebody who's got their heart like David. I've got a boy down here. He, he doesn't have any king's armor. He doesn't have any king credentials, but he's got a pant in his heart for me. I can use that boy. Saul is puffed up with his height Israel wanted the tallest man and God said I want a man who wants me I'm not interested in credentials not interested in degrees I'm interested in somebody who would rather have me than anything else I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold give me Jesus give me God thirdly Every revival in the Old Testament rested solidly on a new and powerful proclamation of the Word. And this is powerfully illustrated in Josiah when they discovered the law of the Lord that had been buried in the temple ruins. They rediscovered and brushed off that book and they read it. Revival went throughout Israel because they had rediscovered the law of God. Oh, I must say to you, after preaching 48 years, I know I'm fading in time. My passion is, who will preach this book to my grandchildren? Who loves the words of God? Who's wearing out a Bible? Who is addicted to Scripture as well as God? When you pursue God, you will love what God says. And they always went back. Wilbur Smith said this about the Word of God and revivals. A revival which does not rest solidly upon the Word of God will ultimately either fade out because there's no fountain of divine truth continually refreshing it, or it will run into dangerous and sensational emotionalism, which after it has passed will make those who have been the subjects of such an experience dry and indifferent to the things of God. Fourthly, every revival was a return of the people of God to the true and living God. He quit being a rival. He became preeminent again. They always returned to God being God. Now, you've got to remember, Israel lived among polytheism. Our day is atheism, but they had many gods. Go down and pick the favorite gods you want. Oh, matter of fact, last year you should have been there. You should have been instead of our bar mitzvah. Last year, my wife and I watched our baby boy cooked in the arms of Molech. As we put him in the mouth of Molech, an idol that had these extended arms, he built the fire inside the idol. As it heated up, you went up and you laid your little baby boy on it. And these arms were designed to let it roll into the mouth of Molech. And you say, we just went to a worship service where our baby boy was just sacrificed in the flames to Molech. God said, and through Jeremiah You've done something and given something to idols that never entered my mind to ask you to give me. I'll give my son. I don't ask you to burn up your son. False gods and the devil will take from you more than God. See, our God, no one's ever seen anyone like this God. He puts his son on a tree. He gives up his son He said, I'm not asking you in order to have me to boil up your baby and throw it in the mouth of a living idol. You come to me, and I'll show you a nail-scarred son of mine that took your place. Fifthly, they always removed the idols. Uh, They not only returned to God, but they would remove the idols. And if you know, they'd go throughout the city, tear down the Asherah poles, turned everything because Israel would always turn into uh, the idols of the day because tied to the idols of Israel was always sexual promiscuity. And the greatest religion you can formulate is formulate a religion where you get God and sexual promiscuity and you capture both man's sex drive and his drive for worship. And you combine it at the temple and you get both for one visit. And that's what they did at Aphroditus. That's what they did at the temple of Dionysus. That's what they did at the temple of Diana. Come here, we'll give you sex and religion. It captured the basic driven drives of the human psyche. God told his priests, you shall not walk up on, you shall not build high altars. You know why? I don't want your legs to be shown from your robes. I want no sensuality connected with the worship of Yahweh. I'm a pure God. Nothing dirty about me. Sixthly, every time there was a revival, there was an overwhelming sense of conviction of sin and a desire to remove to a pure life. Seventh, this is amazing. They always return, this is in the Old Testament's uh, biographies we'll look at. They always return to the altar where the blood and the mercy seat were and relied upon it again. They would renew offerings. They would quit offerings at times in the backslidings, and when the nation would get in trouble. But every time they came back, guess what? They start the sacrifices full-time, bringing in lambs, bringing in the bullocks. They couldn't give God enough. You know what? They shouted, we know our acceptance with God is on the basis of the blood of a substitute. We're not relying on ourselves anymore. And let me tell you, every time the church has had a revival, it has brought the centrality of the cross and Christ back to it. They got delivered from worshiping programs, personalities, buildings, stuff. Jesus once again in his atoning work and his propitious death was once again the burning issue of their hearts. They knelt at the cross. They worshiped the Christ of the cross. Christ becomes central again, not just church stuff. Christ, Christ alone. The Lamb is returned to the central place. And when I thought of that, I, let me read you an old hymn. Call From Every Stormy Wind That Blows. I try to sing hymns on my knees at home. We sing so much stuff here, I can't even keep up with it. So I just got a hymn book. I know at least eight of those. So I sing them. From every stormy wind that blows, from every swelling tide of woes, there is a calm, a sure retreat, tis found beneath the mercy seat. Ah, whither could we flee for aid when tempted, desolate, dismayed? Or how the host of hell defeat had suffering saints no mercy seat? Ah, there on eagles' wings we soar, and sin and sense molest no more. And heaven comes down our souls to greet While glory crowns the mercy seat, I can't tell you how much revived saints dwell in their thinking on the mercy seat, the covering of Christ for my sins, my status, my acceptance. That I come boldly to a throne where there's mercy because it's been sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb. It gives you boldness to come the mercy seat. Some of you stay whipped with a besetting sin or whipped with the shame. You were uh, molested. You were, uh, you had this experience and you were dirtied here and you're And sometimes you can always feel dirty. Let me tell you, when you come to the mercy seat, you see God is preoccupied with the mercy seat. And the mercy seat now sits at his right hand. It's his son. It's the place where justice was satisfied against you. Everything against you, God plunged it into his own beloved son. It fell on him. Oh, that we believed it. Oh, that we believed it. All the rotten things you've ever done, the full penalty for them, fell on him. And now when you go there, nothing is effused but mercy. Now, when that truth becomes old, mundane, and so-so, seesaw, saw so-so, ah, once that quits moving you, you're backslid. You've lost first love. You've gone on to something else. You never hear me. God wants to take a 10-pound penny nail and nail you right there at the cross. Nail you there. Spurgeon said, I put one foot at the base of the cross and I stretch the other foot as far as I can go. But I will never move from the cross. It's the only way hell raisers like most of us have been or tried to be or thought we were can find any mercy at the mercy seat. Christ is the only one that would ever be interested in Edwin Chandra. Tilly, well, she's desperate though, need a husband. But you know, uh, to pick him up when he did sin, gain, all of us. Did you know all of you were ugly in your sin? We always pick on these hoods from their background. You all were pretty rotten starting with me. The thing that qualifies me for this job is I'm a great sinner. I'm a great sinner. And according to Paul in First Timothy 1, he told the church, he said, Timothy if I come to preach to you When I come to preach, hear me, son. He said, when I stand before the church, he said, there will be two things on display when they see me, Paul. They will see the long-suffering of God and the mercy of God that put me in the ministry. You see, God wants us people because when other sinners see us, I say, you mean God would put up with that much to use a person? You mean God would show that much mercy that he'd use them? And we ought to say, no, he really got a pretty good person in me. We need to shout, I'm a product of mercy. The mercies of God. I'm a product of the long patience of God. I'm I'm not standing before you as the holiest man in the place. I'm standing here as a man. Mercy found me in Jesus. I will claim his righteousness, and you cannot rip it off of me. I'm clothed in it. I'm bathed in it. I've been nailed to it. I stand in the perfect righteousness of Christ. He is my righteousness. Not some puny things I could do. I love what my old daddy said when I interviewed him before his death. Dad, what brought you to this position of the security of the believer? And my brother, sis, we were there, we knew he's dying. Our mother said he's got cancer. He's going. He doesn't know it. And so we met at my brother Davis. We made a recording. And so there I knew this might be my last chance. And I said, Oh, Daddy, we grew up in holiness, Wesleyan circles, and where well, you had to be almost sinless, perfect, and oh, well, we were rigid in our ways of life, that kind of thing. And, I, and he finally came to uh, the grace of God. I said, what, what brought you to see this? He said, I guess my being such a failure, I guess my, my being such a great sinner. For he said these words, the people I was going to heaven with, we were walking on a tightrope wire and any moment you could fall off. Any moment you could slip off. And he said, "I, I tried. I tried my best. But he said, I'd get up to bat and I'd strike out. And he said, I struck out. I failed him. I failed him over and over. And then he said, but I never came back to him and heard him say, I don't know you. You're not mine. He said, I never could hear that voice. And there my sin and shame and defeat. Oh, hear me, saints. When revival comes, the centrality of the work of Christ for us, poor sinners, will come and glo- just loom over the church and every. We want to get sinners to Christ because He's a friend of sinners. It's His death for us. Eighthly, a renewed sense of unbounding joy and exuberant gladness comes when there's revival. Nehemiah, when the law was read and they began to weep, he stopped the people and said, Stop your weeping, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. Where God works, there is a taste of heavenly joy. Ninthly, revival always brought a time of great productivity and prosperity. Printing presses, Bible schools, Bible colleges, uh, ministerial training— things would just abound. Organizations would be started. Great things would happen when God worked among a people.
1: And that will conclude our time today here on Truth For Today from Valley Bible Church in Hercules with our teacher and pastor, Phil Howard.